Well, what a wonderful time of worship we've already had. Thank you all for singing and joining with us in praise this morning to our Lord. We now turn to really the high point of our worship. We get to hear from God's Word once again, have it opened up, have it explained. And we need to take the text in and apply it to our own life. That's the goal of expository preaching. Not just to hear, not just to take notes, but to have it apply to our own hearts, to our own lives. We are in the book of Romans, and we're going through the bad news in chapter 1. Chapter 1 of Romans, after verse 17, is the bad news. One eighteen through 32, Paul is telling us why the world needs the gospel. Why the world needs the gospel. And sometimes we realize why the world needs the gospel. We know people need to be saved. There's no hope without Christ. But we don't always understand what they already know in their heart, what they already believe in their heart of hearts, in their mind. What does the unbeliever know? Even if they've never had a Bible, even if they've never been to Sunday school, never heard the gospel, never even heard of Jesus Christ, What does that person already know before they hear the gospel, before we take the gospel to them? Well, Paul has been telling us about that. Remember back in 16 and 17 of chapter 1, he told us about the gospel itself. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone, he says, who believes. And he goes on to say the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. God's righteousness is revealed in Christ to those who have faith in Him. We get the righteousness of Christ. He takes away our sin. We're forgiven. And now we're declared righteous. That's what it means to be justified. Well, then he goes on to give us the reason. That's so important. The reason he's not ashamed, because a lot of Christians today are definitely ashamed of the gospel. They're ashamed of the Bible. They're ashamed of the truth, even in this chapter. They don't want to talk about it. And Paul, in his day, there was the same issue. You could lose your life for saying you were a Christian. And he says, I'm not ashamed. Four, in verse 18, and this is where I want to pick up and just read the rest of the chapter to you. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, and here's what they do, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him or really glorify Him, As God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and in their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, as a result of this, God gave them over and the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For the women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval 
to those who practice them. So that is the bad news about mankind. That is the reason that people need the gospel. The pagan, the one who is not a Jew, the one who did not grow up with the Old Testament scriptures in Paul's day, the one who's never heard of Christ, they're lost in sin. And they have not the righteousness of God being revealed, but the wrath of God being revealed. And Paul has been telling us about that wrath. He explained there in 19 through 23, he said, here's why God's wrath is being revealed. They've turned away from God. They knew there was a God. They could see God in creation, not literally see him, but the whole creation speaks of a powerful creator God. And it tells of his divine nature and his power, and it's eternal. Now, the right response would be to worship such a God. The right response would be to give thanks and to glorify him. But Paul says they didn't. Instead, they turned away in their sin and they ran off into idolatry. So verses 19 through 23 tell us why God's wrath is being revealed. The rest of this chapter, from 24 all the way down to the last verse today, 32, is explaining how that wrath is being revealed on mankind. And you see this phrase over and over. God gave them over. He handed them over. God is the judge. And right now, not just in the future with hell and with the Lord's wrath upon the earth, the Lord's day, but right now, God is judging mankind. And He has judged them already and handing them over to their punishment in this life. The punishment starts now. And until and unless they're saved... They will be punished by this kind of wrath right now and go into further punishment in the future. And he talks about what the wrath is. It's handing them over to the punisher, which is their own sin. God has handed them over to their own degrading passions. He talks about sexual sins, first of all, and homosexuality. And just saying, look, even against nature, they even went against nature in their lusts and their desires. And then 28 through 31 we looked at last week, he also gave them over to a depraved mind. And he lists 21 sins that are committed by the unbeliever. They characterize the unbelieving life. Not to say that every person does all of these sins plus homosexuality, but he's saying, look, all mankind goes after one or more of these sins. And that's why God's wrath is upon mankind. They're without excuse. No one can stand before the Lord at Judgment Day and say, I didn't know, God. I didn't know you. God made himself clearly seen, clearly evident to them, Paul says. And they will be judged if they don't trust in Christ as their Savior. Well, we come to the end of the chapter. And we see in verse 32, really the the worst of the whole list. The worst of the list. When they endorse evil itself. It's one thing to commit sin. But to endorse it in others? To celebrate it? To applaud it? That's really the worst sin that he has in this whole list. And by the way, the the bad news doesn't stop in chapter 1. We're going to be spending some time in chapter 2 going through the bad news. In chapter 3, the bad news, all the way till 321 we finally get to the good news. Paul is an excellent prosecuting attorney. He is going to build his case and build his case. So by the time we're done with chapter 3, verse 20, no one who hears these messages, reads that text and understands it, would be able to say, you know, there's some good people out there that will be saved outside of Christ. Paul makes it very clear that's not going to happen. That is not going to happen. We need Christ. He is the only Savior. The Bible says that for a reason. Because it's true. He's the only Savior. Well, just in verse 32, I want to show you today three truths. Three truths showing why the evil world is under God's wrath. He just sums up the essence of it all right here in this last verse. It's a summary, really, of everything he's covered from 18 down through 32. It's a summary. Three truths that he shows us right here why the evil world is under God's wrath. First of all, the world knows God's judgment. 
the world knows God's judgment against sinners. That's the first truth he reveals right here. The world knows it. And they clearly understand God's judgment. It says there in the text, and although they know the ordinance of God. Notice it says they know it. Everyone knows the ordinance of God. They not only know about God, which Paul's already said, and they deny that, but they know the ordinances of God and ignore them as well. They deny their creator and ignore the ordinance. The the word can also be translated regulations, commandments, requirements. He's not talking about the Mosaic law. He'll get into that in chapter 2 when he's talking with the Jews and showing how the Jews are in sin as well. No, he's just talking about natural law. The law that God puts in our heart to know right from wrong. In other words, the unbeliever doesn't have to have a Bible. They don't have to come to church and hear from the Bible to know right from wrong. Everyone knows it. Even your little children. They come out as beautiful angels. And it's not long before they start sinning. And it's not long before we have to do like the Bible says. And use the rod to correct them. Because they know right from wrong. They know it. And we have to remind them of it as we punish as biblical Christian parents. Well, that's all mankind as well. They all know the regulations, the commandments, not the Mosaic law, not the Old Testament. They just simply know right from wrong. Deep down inside, they know and they simply do not care. They love their sin more than they care for God and his law. And Paul gets very specific. Notice the rest of the passage, the first phrase, really. He tells us what the ordinance is. That those who practice such things are worthy of death. Worthy of death. How's that for health, wealth, and prosperity gospel? Those who practice such things are worthy of death. You don't hear that preached enough in pulpits today. Let's have men come back and preach the word right here as Paul wrote it. The greatest epistle, many argue, in the New Testament, Romans. And he spends almost three chapters detailing man's sin. Those who practice such things are worthy of death, he says. Not just a natural death here. Of course, everyone dies. Everyone dies. Unless Christ comes back before we die, everyone will go to death. Even the believer who's been redeemed will die. Now here he's talking about an eternal death, an eternal punishment. That those who practice such things are worthy of an eternal death. You see, even the pagans at the time that Paul wrote this knew that the wicked would be punished. All pagans had some view of the afterlife. And the Greco-Roman world viewed the worst place you could go as a place called Tartarus. Tartarus was the place that they sent, the Greeks believed, the Titans to. Later, even the Jews will pick that up and use Tartarus to say that's where the evil angels who fell in Genesis 6 went to and were punished by God. The philosopher Plato wrote about this place called Tartarus. He said it's a subterranean place, lower than Hades, where divine punishment was meted out. They even knew that there was a place of punishment. Now, they got some details wrong. They didn't know the scriptures and all the details that the Bible gives us about hell. But they knew that there would be punishment and eternal death for their sins. Peter picks this up in 2 Peter 2.4. He uses the Greek word Tartarus. And it's often translated as hell in our English Bibles. But he says that's the place where some fallen angels are being held. So it's not just a Jewish philosophy there. But Peter says angels are suffering right now in a place called Tartarus that is hell for those angels. So Paul is saying, look, even the pagans knew what they were doing. They knew it was wrong. They knew it was against God's commands, natural law that he puts in the heart of right and wrong. And they did it anyway, knowing that it would bring about eternal death. This is what Hebrews 10.25 reminds believers of, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment 
and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. He's, he's encouraging believers to be holy and to live a holy life. Because he says, look, there is a terrible place of punishment. Later in Romans, Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 6.23. He's not just talking about physical death there. Because he contrasts it with eternal life. Look, believers have eternal life. But if you live in sin, if you continue in sin, if you're not saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, then your sin will pay a wage. You'll get paid for that sin. And it's death. And because he's contrasting it with eternal life, we know that's eternal death. He gets even more clear in 2 Thessalonians 1.9. He's writing about those who do not know God. Who are those who do not know God? The pagans. And those who do not obey the gospel, that's the Jews who denied the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Everyone knows there is a an eternal punishment for sin. Not only do they know God, but they know what is wrong and what will be punished by him if they commit it. And Paul says, even though they know that, they still do it. They don't care. They don't care. And if you remember, many of believers in this room can remember when they were in sin and how little they cared about God. We might have a little conscience prick occasionally, but we sear our conscience and we ran into sin before the Lord saved us. Remember in Acts 28, Paul has been shipwrecked and he washes up with the crew of the ship and the other prisoners. They wash up on this island, island of Malta. And Malta is south of Italy, part of the Roman Empire at the time. And they're going to build a fire. The natives of the island come out and they build a fire to warm up. And Paul grabs a bundle of sticks and he throws it on the fire And out from the bundle of sticks is a viper that bites him on the hand. And do you remember what the natives said about Paul? Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, they said. And though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. Do you see what they knew? Yeah, they got some of it wrong because they just assumed Paul was a murderer. But they understood that if somebody is a murderer, then they should have justice. Justice would be meted out upon them. Well, then Paul doesn't die. And so they say what? He's a God. He must be a God. Because only a God could survive a poisonous viper. So yes, their reasoning is off. Their their mind doesn't work. It's depraved, as we've already seen in the passage here. But they still understood that a murder should be punished by justice. And they even had a God named justice. So how do they believe Such a thing. How do they know right from wrong? Well, it's not just from seeing that there is a God because of creation. But God has actually put in everyone's heart the knowledge of right and wrong. Look at chapter 2, and we'll come to this in chapter 2, but 2.14, in Romans 2.14, he talks about the Gentiles. And he's, he's using this argument to convict the Jews, because even the Gentiles know right from wrong. He says, for when Gentiles who do not have the law, talking about the law of Moses, they don't have the Ten Commandments in writing, they don't have the Old Testament. They do instinctively, instinctively, from from their own nature, from their heart, the things of the law. They do right things because they know right and wrong. Sometimes they, everybody knows murder is wrong, and many people don't commit murder. So they're instinctively obeying the law in that way. Not having the law are a law to themselves. They do have a law. They have a natural law. They know right from wrong. And that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternating, alternatingly accusing or else defending them. So their conscience tells them, this isn't right. Murder is not right. Adultery is not right. Homosexuality is not right. It goes against nature. Everyone, everyone believes that in their heart of hearts. They have to. God's word says they know right from wrong. So what does this mean when you're talking to an unbeliever? And they tell you, I don't believe what you say. I don't believe in God. 
Bible says you already do. Now, they still might not listen to that, but the truth is they do. And you should reason with the assumption, because the Bible says they do, know that there is a God and they know their sin is wrong. So talk to them about that. Talk to them about judgment. Talk to them about the guilt. Everybody that sins has the guilt of sin. They know things that they do are worthy of eternal death. Talk to them about that. Sometimes people will listen. Sometimes God will use that as a time of salvation. And other times they'll just harden themselves even more and deny the truth. Well, it turns out that we've learned a lot in chapter 1 of Romans about what the unbelieving pagan knows. I mean, modern liberal Christianity will say that people don't know anything about God. It's not their fault. They're just doing their best. If they worship a false god, that God will, this is what liberals say, that God will save them. As long as they're a good Muslim, as long as they're a good Hindu. But Paul said, no. No, God has made himself known to them. We've learned that. We've learned that they've been given over to punishment, the wrath of God. And even though they know, even though they know they're being punished for their sin, they still do it. So that leads to our second point. Because they have a depraved mind. Because they run into sin, even though they know it, the world continues to sin regardless. Regardless of their knowledge. Regardless of what they know. They're sinning against their own conscience. The Bible says that's a sin in and of itself. Even a believer who knows and is convicted that something is not right. If they go against their conscience, that's a sin. This one little phrase you see in, the, in verse 32. They not only do the same. Following the line of argument. Although they know the ordinance of God. That those who practice such things are worthy of death. They not only do the same. Now he's going to continue with another point here. But stop, stop just a second and think about it. They know what they're doing will send them to eternal punishment. Now, we would think as believers that they would wisen up. That they would figure out to stop doing that. Stop sinning. Turn to the only place of salvation. The only person of salvation, Jesus Christ. But you know, sin makes you stupid, doesn't it? It makes you stupid. I said that when I was preaching through Ecclesiastes. And a little kid came up to me afterwards and said, you said stupid in a sermon. Now, I did a search. The word stupid is not in most English translations. But some good and godly men have used that word throughout church history to talk about the foolishness of sin. It does. It messes with your mind. It makes you do more sin, even though you know it's wrong to do it. Even though these people knew, Paul says, they know in their hearts committing these sins will send them to hell, it doesn't prevent them from indulging in the sins anyway. Now, no rationally thinking person would go ahead and do that. If you know that's going to give you the death penalty, you're going to go ahead and commit the crime. But sin twists our mind. Until we've been redeemed, until we've been given a new mind that's renewed by the Holy Spirit because of Christ, that is the way the world thinks. That is the way we thought. Speaking of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes 9.3, he writes, Solomon, King Solomon says, The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil, and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. He's not talking about a medical condition here. He is saying that they're insane the way they act. Mankind acts insane by running off into sin, doing things that hurt them now in this life and hurt them for eternity. Instead of realizing that death is coming, their natural tendency is not to come to God for salvation, but to run away. It's like somebody who's crying for help, that their jugular has been cut and it's squirting out all of this blood and they've only got seconds to live and they run away from the paramedic. And they run away from the ER, thinking they can find help somewhere else. It's insanity, Solomon says. It's been said, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result. That describes the world. Just doing the same thing over and over. I can just work my way out of this. Yeah, this sin led to some bad effects, but I can work my way out of it, which is just another kind of sin. 
thinking that you can save yourself, work yourself out of hell. Paul says it doesn't work. The whole Bible says it doesn't work. Mankind thinks they can just sin their way out of judgment for sin. Think about it. That's what it boils down to. I'm going to sin my way out of sin. I'm going to sin my way out of the judgment that is coming for my sin. This is what we call in theology total depravity. Total depravity. It's where your whole person is corrupted. Literally, sin controls every part of a person, including his heart, his mind, and his will. He is spiritually dead. He's blind. He's unable to obey and believe or repent. Some people actually debate whether man is totally depraved. They deny that. And passage after passage is telling us his mind, his heart, his will is totally depraved and he's unable, he does not have the ability or power in himself to believe in the gospel. He will deny it every time until the Lord opens his heart. You remember when Paul goes and he's on a mission and he comes down to the river and he meets these women who are washing clothes and he preaches the gospel and it says that the Lord opened their hearts to believe. Because naturally they would just tune it out. They don't want to hear it. Total depravity. Genesis 6-5. This is before the flood. God says that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Think about what that passage is saying. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, that is really bad news. But that's before the flood, right? The flood took care of all that. God wiped out everybody but Noah's family. Well, Noah's family lands. Noah falls right into sin with drunkenness. But in Genesis 8.21, God is making a covenant with Noah. The reason he's giving this covenant is for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. From his earliest days. The intent, the desire of his heart is evil. Have you ever heard that man is born generally good? Have you heard that? That's sort of the world's philosophy, right? I even hear some Christians saying, well, I believe the best about mankind. They'll do what's right. That whole war thing in Europe right now, Eastern Europe, I'm sure it'll all work out because man is inherently good. I know we try to believe that and think the best, but when the Bible says hope the best, it doesn't say deny the truth while you're believing the best about people. Total depravity is real. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. John 3, 19, this is Jesus. And John is talking about Jesus. He says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. They love the darkness for their deeds were evil. Why do they love the darkness instead of the Son of God who is bringing light? Because their deeds are evil. Because they live in sin. To come to the light they would have to look at their sin in the light and admit that they were sinners. And they can't do that. They love their sin more than the light. Let's go forward in Romans chapter 3. Surely there's some good people out there who are not saved. Good in their heart, right? That's what the world tells us. That's what a lot of the books and movies and media tell us. But here's what Paul says in Romans 3.10. As it is written, he says, Look, all that I've said about sin... I'm just going to quote the Old Testament for you. I'm just going to show you in the Old Testament, God's word clearly says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. This is total depravity. Not one is righteous. Not one is good in that they do good things for the glory of God. Now, there are people who do good things for society. There are many unbelievers who do good things for their family. They do good things for their friends. But ultimately, when it comes down to it, they don't do that for the glory of God. They do it for their own glory, for their boasting, for the love they're going to get from someone else, and so on. Go forward in Romans to Romans 8. And let's look at verse 7 here. Romans 8, 7. He's talking here about the mind set on the flesh. The unbelievers have a mind set on the flesh, and that is death. That's what he says in verse 6. And in verse 7, he says, Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. The unbeliever's mind is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. 
it is not even able to do so. The heart is so bent on sin, the unbeliever's mind is so bent on sin that he doesn't want to subject himself to God. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Unbelievers cannot please God. It's not possible. If it was possible to please God so that a person could be saved, then Jesus never would have come. There would be no need for the cross. There would be no need for it at all. Well, that is what they do. The world continues in sin regardless. But now let's look at where he's driving home to the last point. Number three, the world approves and endorses others in their sin. That's where he's going with this whole statement. And he says, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. They know what they're doing is wrong. They know it deserves eternal punishment. They not only do it themselves, but they clap and celebrate when others do it as well. And he says, that's the worst. That is the worst. He uses this word hearty approval. That's how the NASB translates it here. And he's talking here about to join in approval. The word means to agree with, to approve of, to consent, to sympathize. And even there's a sense of celebrate and applaud. A sense of pleasure that someone else is sinning with you. Or you're watching and observing someone else sin. The same Greek word is used in a few other places. Let's have a look at them. Luke 11, 11, uh, 48. Luke eleven forty eight, and you get the sense here of how wicked people approve of and consent with others who are sinning. Luke eleven forty eight, Jesus says, "So you are witnesses, and approve the deeds of your fathers." He's talking about the Pharisees, the lawyers. You're witnesses and approve. There's the word. You approve their deeds because it was they who killed the prophets. And you build their tombs. He says, they're so sinful in their thoughts that they approved of people killing the prophets. And then in Jesus' day, they're building up nice, beautiful tombs for the prophets. Same word is being used there. They're approving the sins of their fathers. Let's go forward to the book of Acts. And Paul uses this a couple of times about his own testimony. And I'm sure if we surveyed the room, many of us would have a similar testimony. We approved of sinful actions before we were saved. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Here's the word again. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. When they put Stephen to death, who was there? Who held their coats? Who was agreeing with them, cheering them on in a sense? Paul, who's called Saul, Here in this text, Saul was in hearty agreement. There's the word, hearty approval. Now he speaks of this again later in Acts chapter 22 and verse 20, giving some more details here. He's giving his testimony in Acts 22 and verse 20. He says, When the blood of your witness, Stephen, so he's talking to the Jews, he's making a speech. When the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I also was standing by approving. He approved. He didn't get his hands dirty. He didn't throw the rocks that killed Stephen, but he approved. He enjoyed it. He even says in 1 Timothy that he had such a zeal for killing Christians. The idea there is it was an enjoyment that he had to kill Christians. And it says he was watching out for the coats of those who were slaying him. He approved of their sinful actions. The Pharisees approved of their fathers killing the prophets. And now Paul says, all mankind goes on sinning and then they approve of others who sin as well. They applaud it. Hearty approval. It's pure wickedness to agree with, to encourage, to support, to endorse, to applaud others who sin. If everyone knows that sin leads to eternal death, what does that mean when you're encouraging someone else to do it? You're encouraging them to go to hell as well. One 
pastor, William Shedd, in the 19th century, said, to take pleasure in seeing another commit a sin implies even greater depravity than to commit it personally. The viciousness is less impulsive and more cold-blooded and satanic. There's no sin that's excusable. Paul's already said that. But at least a person who runs off into sin can say, well, I was passionate. I got carried away. Now, it's not going to get them out of eternal punishment if they're an unbeliever. But this person here, they're saying at the end of verse 32, they're saying that they sit back and enjoy it. They enjoy watching others sin, encouraging others to sin. The pastor there, William Shedd, is saying it's cold-blooded. It's satanic. It's premeditated. It's not just by passion. This reminds us of Isaiah 5.20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. Who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. It's a complete lie to say something evil is good. And that's exactly what our world does all the time. And even some Christians slip into this. Saying that, A lie is a good thing when it sends people to hell. Proverbs 2.14, speaking there of the ways of evil men, they are those who delight in doing evil and rejoice in the perversity of evil. Many of us grew up in this kind of culture, this kind of world where so many wicked things were celebrated, laughed at. You know, men laugh at going to these places where women take off their clothes. Men celebrate that. They snicker about it. They get drunk and laugh at each other because of it. Get into car accidents and take that as a badge of courage. Look how drunk I got and ran off the road. It's ridiculous. God speaks to his own people, Israel, in Hosea 7, 7 7-2. He says, they do not consider in their hearts that I remember all their wickedness. Now their deeds are all around them. They are before my face. With their wickedness, they make the king glad and the princes with their lies. He's saying, look, they even make their leaders happy with their sin. They are all adulterers. Like an oven heated by the baker who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. It's like the heat from a stove. They're all adulterers just working each other up. Let's look at Psalm 50 and verse 16. Let's see what the psalmist says about this idea of rejoicing in others' sin. Being happy, applauding it. Psalm 50 verse 16. God has something to say about that in many places in the Bible. In Psalm 50, he says, But to the wicked... God says, what right have you to tell of my statutes, to take my covenant in your mouth? He's talking about the Israelites here who've made their promises. They said they would obey God. For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you are pleased with him and you associate with adulterers. He says, look, you promised. You said that you would follow my word And you're actually celebrating evil. And you're associating with evildoers. God doesn't take that lightly. And in the New Testament, it's the same. Mark 14, Mark 14, verse 10. The life of Jesus here. Go with me there. Look at Mark 14, 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were what? Glad. They were glad. They were happy when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at that opportune time. They were happy. We've got somebody who wants to join in our sin, in our conspiracy to kill the Lord. And you know what Paul's saying about that? He's saying in verse 32 of Romans 1 that that's actually the worst sin. There are greater sins that a person can commit. One sin is enough to send anyone to hell. But there are some sins that are worse than others. And Paul says to applaud other people's sin is worse than sinning yourself. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 18, 6. He's talking about the little children. He's really just using that phrase to talk about new believers. Sometimes we think 
He's talking about children. It would apply to real children if they're new believers. But he says in Matthew 18, 6, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. He takes it serious. If you're going to lead someone else into sin, or we could expand it and say apply and love and endorse and applaud and, and celebrate, man, that's really, really going beyond the point of eternal punishment. You are going to suffer in the worst punishment in hell. And he does talk about that with different cities that denied his ministry when he went through those cities. You remember? Woe to you. He says, Sodom and Gomorrah will suffer less than the cities who denied Christ. This is why the old commentator Matthew Poole said, having pleasure in them that do evil is the highest kind of wickedness. Such come nearest the devil who take pleasure in evil because it is evil. People are not only happy about their own sin, but they're happy when they see others and they encourage others and endorse and even give money sometimes in today's world to support others in their sin. There are organizations that take donations so that people can continue in their sin. And they're endorsed by all the major companies in the world. John Calvin said this is the summit of all evils. When the sinner is so void of shame that he's pleased with his own vices and will not bear them to be reproved and also cherishes them in others by his consent and approbation. That's the exact opposite of what a Christian should do. A Christian, the Bible says, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Christians don't celebrate others' sin. Even if that's your pet sin that you're still struggling with and someone else does it, you don't celebrate it, you don't applaud it, and you don't whitewash it. This is such a problem in our society today. People celebrating sin. Let me just give you some examples. I'll give you three here. The gay pride movement. Just think about that. Pride in their sin. The Bible says they know it's sin. It's not even debatable. The Bible says they know it's sin because it goes against nature. And they're flaunting it as loud as they can. And all these major companies are tripping over themselves to run commercials now in support of that. They love it. They give money towards it. Presidents of the United States supporting so-called same-sex marriage. As long as it helps their campaign. As long as more people will vote for them because the tide has changed in our world. So now you can run a campaign and say that. Even though there's a history of flip-flop back and forth and their campaign histories. Now you have the American Psychological Association saying it's healthy and good for adopted children to be placed in same-sex households. Life Science Magazine published an article a few years back, Why Gay Parents May Be the Best Parents. And it's true because of science, they say. It's the science. University of Washington ran an article, Married LGBT Older Adults Are Healthier, Happier Than Singles Study Finds. Celebrating it. Just celebrating it. And even trying to run certain studies and view certain studies as backing them up scientifically. We can't join that as believers. We, can't. We, we love the lost enough to tell them the truth and tell them the gospel. And we don't hate them and we don't try to harm them and we don't try to hurt them in any way. But we got to speak the truth and never join with people applauding sin. Another one is abortion. I mean, this is huge. The abortion that happens every day in America is ridiculous. Every day in the world, how many people are being killed right now in the womb? And people applaud this. It's a woman's body to do with what she chooses, the world says. The baby's not going to have a good life. Do you, do you see what just happened when somebody says that? That baby's not going to have a good life, so it's okay. They're trying to play God. They're saying they know the future. The baby's not going to have a good life. And they can take the life of a person. That is playing God. And people celebrate it. There's commercials on TV. There's commercials all over the internet for this. It's ridiculous. No one in society even really wants to talk about it. I mean, yes, thankfully, the younger people are beginning to realize because of ultrasounds that that's a life. But the Bible says they know in their heart that it's wrong. 
They don't have to even be convinced by that. That helps for them to face the truth, but it's wrong. Let's just look at something more general. Let's talk about lies, slander. The world just goes on and approves of it. Lies, no big deal. I mean, you have people caught on TV in a speech or a sports person after a game will say something. It turns out to be a complete lie. Just shrug your shoulders. You know, they say, I'm sorry if it hurts you. And then they go on and make their millions and get fame and get elected. Politicians are just expected to lie. You know, sometimes even as Christians, we just get so used to them lying. Just do the best we can, right? And they continue to lie and get caught in it and lie and get caught in it. Or sometimes people will say, well, he claims to be a Christian, so his constant lies don't matter. We'll even see false teachers that lie through their teeth on TV. You show somebody in the Bible where they're contradicting Scripture, people just shrug their shoulders and go on. The world loves lies and slander. So what should we do? Let's just end on this note. What should we do? There's a lot we can do as Christians, but I want to give you three to match the three that we just looked at. First of all, tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. If you know someone that's caught in these sins, which we all do, tell them the truth. There's 21 sins listed here in the chapter, and then there's the whole sin of sexual impurity. You know someone, and you're going to have an opportunity to talk with someone Tell them the truth. Out of love, speak the truth in love, Paul says in Ephesians. But the Christian's called to proclaim Christ and his gospel. We're not called to celebrate what the world celebrates. We've got to help pull people back from the edge that they're about to jump off into. Or maybe they've already jumped and we've got to grab them with an arm and say, look, come back, trust in Christ. When we went to the, the Grand Canyon after seminary, we, we stopped off on the way back. And we were surprised there's not a lot of uh, guardrails at the Grand Canyon. And it's, you know, it's a deep canyon. And so as parents, we're watching those little kids. And especially Mama, she is, Autumn is really concerned that those boys are just kind of. So we got to say, get back, stay away from the edge. Because that's what a loving parent does. Well, isn't that what a Christian should do? Stay away from the edge. These adults who are running into sin that Paul's talking about might still go. But at least we warn them. You know, Spurgeon talks about if people are going to go to hell, then they're going to go to hell. But let them leap over our bodies to get there. Because we're laying down saying, stop, stop. Secondly, be a good, godly example. Be a godly example. Jesus talks about Christians being the salt of the earth. The city on a hill, the light that cannot be hidden. What is he saying there? The salt seasons the earth. It preserves The food that it's put in. A light is something you can see by. A city on a hill is something you can see in the distance and go to. We've got to be a godly example ourselves. We've got to glorify our Father in heaven through our good works, Jesus says. Then people know that there is actually a godly person that I can go to. When my sin puts me in such a place that I need to talk to somebody, they know that's you because you live a godly life. But if you live like them, if you talk like them, if you applaud their sin and say it's no big deal, we'll we'll support you no matter what. They're not coming to you. They're coming to the godly person that they know. Thirdly, refuse to associate with evil. Paul says, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. 1 Corinthians 15.33 Sometimes it's as simple as just not Hanging around people who are running into these sins. You know, you'll see people today say, well, Jesus ate with sinners. Jesus went into their house and he ate with sinners. He did. And what was his purpose there? Was it to party it up with them and sin too? No. It was to evangelize. And if you want to go into the bar and into the strip clubs and into these places to evangelize, it's probably not a good idea, first of all, for you, because you're probably tempted if you're bold enough to do that. But secondly, you better really evangelize and not just hang out with your friends who are doing drugs, who are drinking, who are partying, who are committing sexual immorality, who are supporting abortion, supporting homosexuality. Refuse to associate with evil. Paul says in Ephesians 5.11, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead 
even expose them. Bring them to light. Expose them. Show people that they're wrong. Even if a professing Christian has run off into one of the sinful lifestyles that we saw in Romans 1. Church discipline maybe has to happen. Maybe they're not in the same church that will even do church discipline. But you need to refuse, Paul says, even to eat with such a one. Refuse to eat with them? i got to break friendship over somebody's sinful lifestyle? Yes, if they continue in it. And you being with them in any way, in any way makes them think you're okay with it, that you applaud it. If somebody asks you to go to a same-sex wedding, there are pastors out there who say it's no big deal. But what is a wedding if not a celebration of that event? You're called to witness that event. A witness is there to celebrate. There are people who went all the way to the Supreme Court and they got off. They didn't have to be punished by their states like Colorado and Oregon because they proved without a doubt that it's celebrating a wedding to bake a cake that is a wedding cake for same-sex marriage to provide flowers. And then Christians are going to turn around and say it's not celebrating the wedding to attend. What else is it but a celebration? If there are people you know who are living in sin and you've gone to them and they will not listen, you will have to eventually break fellowship with them. Holding fast, Paul says, to that which is good. In 1 Thessalonians 5, abstain from every form of evil. We love them enough to tell them the truth. And we love them and our Lord Jesus Christ enough that we sometimes have to not associate with evil. It's very dangerous when someone else says they're a Christian and they are in continuous sin. Because when they say we're a Christian, we just let the guard down. Oh, pagans, yeah, we we don't want to be around them. But Christians, it's all good. No, you know them by their fruit. They don't have to live a perfect life to be your friend. But if they're running into sin, tell them and don't associate with them if they continue on. Well, let's go to the Lord right now. And let's ask him to help us with this message and to help us apply it whatever way the Holy Spirit sees fit. Oh, Lord, please uh, help us in our study of sinful mankind to realize, first of all, that we were there. That all of us were there. We need to acknowledge that before you. We need to confess that we're still sometimes even tempted by these sins. But we're so grateful that a genuine believer does not live in these sins, does not continue to practice these sins. And we're so thankful that you've saved us from the eternal death, the eternal destruction that is spoken of in Scripture. Lord, help us to be bold when we take the gospel to unbelievers. Help us to remember that they already know you, God, in some way. They know things about you. They they know in their heart of hearts that you exist. And they even know their sins are worthy of punishment. To help us to connect with them just based on that truth. Tell them about the love of Christ and his death for sinners. And Lord, help us to live godly lives. We love you, Lord. We want to point people to you with our words and our lives. Let us live holy lives for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.